Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. with that mic in your hand. It's time for school. Rock school. With your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. Uh, the oral history is, is a, a unique way where you sort of have to weave together the story with everybody's answers. So it's a lot like being a film editor, but for a book. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns. I'm sorry, but Tammy is not with us this week. And if you're a sharp-eared listener, you probably know what that means. We have another wonderful author and another wonderful book to tell you about. Now, look, I got to tell you, it's tough to tell me something about music that I don't know. But this week... Well, this author certainly did it. Mark Wasserman is the author of Skaboom, an American ska and reggae oral history. Now, you may think you know what ska is and what it can be and what it came to be. Look, I thought so, too, but I was wrong. Mark was kind enough to talk to us about his book, and I think you're going to find it as interesting as I did. So, for an hour... Mark Wasserman, Skaboom, an American ska and reggae oral history for an hour on Rock School. On the phone with me, Mark Wasserman, the author of Skaboom, an American ska and reggae oral history. Mark, thanks for thanks for getting on the phone with me. Thank you so much for having me. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions about your book? I need to fill an hour. Please do. Okay. Let me start with the basics on this thing. Uh, and I just I just thought it was interesting reading the introduction where you said that you like the song Billy Don't Be a Hero that it it's yes. ridiculous to me how much of a price that paid inside of my own uh, my own life <laughs> dated a girl who liked it so what what about it how how does Billy Don't Be a Hero uh, run into your love of ska how does that come together yeah um well that's an interesting question um you know, I grew up with AM radio. I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. So I came of age during the golden era of AM radio in the 70s. And um, where it, whenever my family would, would go uh, for a ride in the car, um, the radio was on. So I heard tons of, of songs on the radio. And for some reason, I was drawn to songs that had like an emotional uh, component to them. Um, and that was one of them. And, and this was during probably near the end of the Vietnam war. So in like 74, 75, when I was a little kid and, you know, I paid attention and I, you know, watched the news with my parents. I heard them talking about what was going on in Vietnam. And, um, there was just something about that song that, that, uh, stuck with me because I think of current events and, around that age, my mom sort of finally connected with me that the songs I heard on the radio were also um, so, you know, I could buy 
a piece of vinyl with that song on it and listen to it all I wanted. So she started to take me to a local drugstore where we lived at the time. And there was, um, they had a little section of the, of the drugstore where they sold, I guess the top 50 songs that you could buy on a 45. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I got an allowance and I was allowed to go there once a week. And I think I could buy two, you can get two forty-fives for a dollar back then. Oh yeah, oh I and, remember um, those days. Sure, <laughs> oh, yeah. and, and that was one of the ones I bought. And and for some reason, I, that song just stuck with me. Um, the connection I think to to ska music though is it was a song that seemed to have sort of a, a uh, it was telling a story, but in, in in sort of a very heavy emotional way. You know, Billy dies at the end. Sorry for anybody if you've never heard the song, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to ruin it for you. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I was eight or nine years old, and that really wrecked me. And um, and uh, I think it was at that point that I realized that music could have a a real impact, particularly on me emotionally, yeah. on me. That song that songs uh, weren't just you know you know things that were in the background, but if you listen carefully, you might hear something and learn something. <laughs> Yeah. I, uh, the next question I want to ask you, I have a, a friend on campus. He's a dean and he's a magnificent fan of ska and he did a, a nicety for me. So I'm going to gift him your book when this is over and as a thank you. And he'll he'll love it probably as much as I did. But here's his question to you. So often people take music and they shove it into little boxes. This is heavy metal. This is hair metal. This is grunge. This is what have you. And he simply wants you to to explain what is ska, because there are people that look at No Doubt and they go, oh, that's ska. Oh, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Oh, that's ska. B-52s. Well, that's ska. Do me a favor. Put it in a little box. What is ska? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, and so I'll try to give you some history uh, to help explain what it is. Um you know, ska music is indigenous to Jamaica. So if anybody knows Jamaica is in the West Indies, you know, a lot of people go there on vacation. Uh, interesting island, uh, a lot of interesting history there. Um, it, the music of, of indigenous to Jamaica is something called Mento and another one called Calypso, which is, which is sort of from Trinidad, which is another island near Jamaica. But that's the music traditionally that people played and, and listened to and danced to and party to, like in the 30s 40s and early 50s but then what happened was um a lot of jamaicans uh worked for uh shipping lines that would go back and forth between uh the west indies and mostly the southern u.s so like new orleans and then uh, ports in like alabama mississippi and florida and while those uh jamaican ship workers were there they would buy uh, records that were popular at the time so in the south you have you know r&b early rock and roll, things like that. And they brought that back with them to Jamaica. And then also at that point, radio um, stations uh, in the South, their signals were getting stronger and stronger and, and people in Jamaica could pick up certain radio broadcasts from places like New Orleans or places in Florida. And they were again hearing like R&B and blues music. And what started to happen was 
they began to com- combine what they were hearing on those records and on those radio broadcasts with Mento and Calypso. And that's sort of how ska was born. It's sort of the child of those uh, genres of music being mixed together. And then what happens also is that Jamaica finally gets its independence from England in the early 60s. And so ska music becomes like independence music, party music to celebrate that the country's finally free. Um, and it's, you know, a music that you can dance to. It's, it's uh, lots of horns, um, mostly fun and upbeat. Uh, then Jamaica sort of starts to go through um, an interesting uh, history where there's more conflict in the country and as, as different political parties are sort of fighting over power, ska music starts to slow down and it becomes something called rock steady. And then it even becomes slower and becomes what we now call reggae. Hmm. Um, and then... Oh, wait, no, wait a minute. No, uh, no, hang on. You don't get to drop that and walk away. Uh, <laughs> I I would have bet, you know, my fine collection of hats that that reggae came before ska, one birthed the other, but you're telling me it's the opposite direction. It's, it's the opposite direction because uh, Jamaica's in the tropics, and um, it's hot, and it's it's not a lot of fun to dance to really upbeat fast music all the time when you, you're going to be a sweaty mess. Um, <laughs> so, but also, it was, it was political. I mean, there's a, you know, we could talk about this for hours, but um, reggae is really um, a slowing down of the rhythm. But also it's the incorporation of ideas about uh, Rastafari, which is, you know, an indigenous religion in Jamaica, um, you know, and and that religious aspect of that gets incorporated into some reggae. Other reggae is more like um, covers of pop music. So you would actually get a lot of times if the Beatles put a single out in England, Mm -hmm. two weeks later, there'd be a reggae version of it in Jamaica. I shot Um, the sheriff. Right, right. So, um, so that's how, how the music sort of develops. But then, interestingly, lots of Jamaican immigrants move to England, and they bring ska and rocksteady and reggae with them. They move to places like London and Birmingham and Liverpool, and they're living next door to white families. And those um, black Jamaican kids and those white English kids go to school together, and they're friends, and Jamaican culture and Jamaican music becomes part of, of music of England. Yeah, is and is that where we get, get two tone? Yeah, or or is it Madness from Great Britain? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So Madness was a bunch of white kids, but they heard reggae and ska and rocksteady growing up on the radio in England and completely wow. influenced them. Well, um, well, do and, me a favor. Explain the term. Ska just sounds like you know something you yell when you get pushed. What <laughs> what does it mean? Yeah. It's actually an alliter- alliterative term, which is they think was um, coined by a guitarist to explain how his guitar sounded when he played it. So, Scott, 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 Scott. Uh-huh. It's, a, it's a, a rhythmic type of um, guitar playing. So that's where they think that came from. That wouldn't be the fellow on the front of your uh, your book, would it be? No, no, oh. no. Uh, this this would have been this would have been. A, I think the guy's name his nickname was Ja Jerry. But this would have been like in the 1960s, the early 60s, that that term was coined. I'm going to play around with this picture that's on the front of your book. Uh, and it, it shows to me, you know, every music 
has things that are with it. In the 1950s, all the girl groups were all in these floor-length dresses, and, and heavy metal has to have leather and all that kind of stuff. This picture on the front of your book, to me, is everything ska is in a visual. First of all, who's the guy? And then second, come back to me, and I want to I wanna ask you about the dress. Sure. That's Clyde Grimes. Clyde was the um, guitarist and uh, main songwriter for a band from Los Angeles called The Untouchables, who um, were very popular in the late 70s and early 80s and and are kind of responsible for helping to create the ska scene in Los Angeles and Orange County that later gave us bands like No Doubt and Real Big Fish and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, Clyde and some of his friends from high school started the untouchables because they they liked um 50s r&b but they also loved um the two-tone ska that they were hearing from england so like the specials madness um the beat um bad manners so they sort of mixed the two and came up with their own unique version of mod ska um so that's where that's where that came from and the way he's dressed is is basically based on what's called a what a rude boy would wear rude boys (laughs) come from jamaica uh they were basically um i guess the best way to describe them would be they were sort of like petty criminals who liked to party so they didn't really have jobs they you know they did whatever they needed to do to, to to make money and survive but with the money that they made they dressed really well they wore black suits, white shirts, ties, really nice pork pie hats, uh, nice shoes. And so that sort of got picked up again when all those immigrants moved to England. Yeah. They brought that rude boy look with them. And um, that became like, you know, in England, people go crazy over style. And so um, that rude boy look became really a big part of English culture and English style. So you see all those bands like the specials are dressed that way they brought that to here to America when the specials and the beat and all those bands started to uh, become popular here in the U S that look got picked up. So oh. Clyde basically is, is um, mimicking what he saw those bands do, but also probably you can see early pictures of Bob Marley as a rude boy and Peter Tosh as a rude boy. They're dressed, really you know, very <laughs> Natalie in suits. Yeah. So oh, that's I where look a lot that of that comes from. Yeah, and yeah. the and the way he's ki- he's kicking his right. I mean, you guys can look up the. This is the radio, but you can look up the the top uh, the front of the book. But he's kicking his right leg way up, and that's what I always take from ska music. It's that it's that upbeat pop it pop it pop it pop. And there's always I'll, I'll make you a bed in this band. There's probably two or three horns behind him. I mean, it's it's loud and it's dance music and it's and it's joy. I get mighty mighty boss tones out of the thing that's i mean it's all encompassed in this picture it's very well done thank you that's why i put that picture on the book i had to actually get the permission of the photographer who took that picture and explain to him why i wanted to use it and that what you just said is basically what i explained to him that i thought the picture said everything that i wanted wanted to convey that the book was about oh sure well let's let's go back i mean my favorite bands i can tell you the first time I heard a lot of them. I remember them distinctly. You know, you've, you've lived on 70s AM rock scream radio. Tell me the first ska song you heard and went, oh, wait a minute. You know, this is what I need to be doing. Yeah. Um, I heard uh, Paul Simon's uh, Mother and Child Reunion. So that would have been like in the early 70s. And um, 
that's basically a rock steady song. Mm-hmm. Paul Simon went down to Jamaica and um, was able to connect with a lot of reggae and rock steady musicians down there and basically had a backing band and and brought that song to them. And so I remember hearing that on the radio and, and thinking like, I've never heard anything like this before in my life. What is yeah. this? So that's that was sort of where where I heard it for the first time. When I looked up ska music on on YouTube, I came up with a lot of drummers who were talking about what they call the drop one beat and all these different things. There's a there's a specific shuffle to the rhythm, isn't there? There is. Yeah, I think that's initially, you know, one of the interesting things um, from writing the book is uh, I interviewed people who were I would consider pioneers Um people who uh, got into reggae before everybody else. And these were mostly rock musicians who got turned on to it. And, and to a person, they all shared that it was um, initially very confusing to learn how to play ska and reggae because rock music is on the two and the four, mm-hmm. right? Backbeat. Reggae and ska music, right, is on the three. And that throws people off initially. Um, I, I interviewed one one guy who's a drummer who was in a band called the Blue Rhythm Band, and he said that that it was like Chinese. Like, he could not <laughs> figure it out. He was a soul drummer, and he until he could figure out that everything was on the three, so that, as you said, the one drop, yeah. um, it, it, was, it was impossible to learn how to play it. So that's what's sort of unique about it. We need to take our first break. We'll be back in one minute to continue talking with Mark Wasserman, author of Skaboom, an American ska and oral history on Rock School. All right, first of all, let me ask, what do you do for a living? Are you a writer or is this something you do outside of it? Cause I'm leading into how the book is written. Sure. Um, yes, I do, uh, make my living as a writer. Uh-huh. Um, I do, uh, advertising copywriting. So, um, that's definitely, uh, the, the written word and communication has been something that I've spent a, a lot of my working life uh, so you're, focused on. So you're the guy that sold me my shoes basically uh well i didn't but somebody like me did. (laughs) i know it's that other guy this is a really thick book this is a book for readers and it 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 demands attention i'm i've seen books like this before they're sort of oral presentations there's not a lot of narrative and it's basically you having interviewed it had to be 30 people if not more and you then broke out their statements into cohesive general narratives in each topic. Again, it demands attention. Why that? Yeah. Why did you take well, that route? Yeah, sure. It's so I took the route of an oral history. And um, I did that because I didn't want the book to be uh, seen through my experience. No one interested in what I think or what I have to say about the early beginnings of American ska. I wanted it to come directly from the horse's mouth. So um, when I was envisioning how to write this book, I came up with a list of, uh, it was 18 bands that I felt uh, really 
were important in terms of developing a uniquely American version of ska. And I love the idea of origin stories. Origin stories are fascinating to me, whether they're um, superheroes or, you know, um, presidential candidates or what have you. Everybody has an origin story. And, and I'm fascinated by what um, made what passion someone had for something that they then put into action. So basically it was finding those, it was like being a musical detective. I had to track down a lot of these people and then I had to reach out to them and convince them to talk to me. And most of them were ag agreed to talk to me. So it really was like being a journalist. It was um, interviewing, it was uh, far more than 30 people. I would say it was more like uh, 200 people. Oh, it's a lot. Um, it's a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and then... Uh, the oral history is is a a unique way where you sort of have to weave together the story with everybody's answers. So it's a lot like being a film editor, but for a book. Yeah. So you have to go through and look at everybody's answers and the, you know transcribe everybody's interview and then find the common thread and then pull those individual um, answers to questions and try to create a a story that flows hopefully in an entertaining and interesting way. It was entertaining. Uh, I do the vast majority of my reading at night. I got a job during the day. And if I can't, you know, if it can't keep me so I don't you know, want to go to bed, um, I consider it a good book. And I went through this, and it's a thick book. I did it in about four sittings. It was a... Uh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> I sort of stuck my head in it and didn't leave. Let me ask you about this. Once you start getting into the earlier chapters... There seemed to be, and I don't know why this, you know, set me aside, but there seemed to be more and more women coming into it uh, and, and playing predominant roles is, I mean, is this a, but when I think about the specials and the Mighty Mighty Bostones and all that kind of stuff, that's, it's all guys, these young, these women that were into it, I mean, were they pioneers or was that just part of the music? No, those are definitely pioneers. Hmm. Um, I think for the most part in this country and probably around the world, um, popular music uh, is a boys club. And um, I wanted to, one of the things I wanted to do was to make sure that the women who were part of these uh, early bands um, got credit for the roles that they played. Um, and in many cases, those women um, were inspiration to other women. So they would, that band, let's use Bim Scala Bim, for example. Mm -hmm. They had a, a woman named Jackie Starr, who was one of their lead singers. She um, would, they toured everywhere around the U.S. for years and years and years. Um, but I think what doesn't get um, told is that young women seeing Jackie Starr on stage were then um, inspired to go and, and join bands or start their own bands. So that was a really important part of this. There, there weren't a lot of women in the early days of American Ska, but there were a few. Like the Toasters are a very popular band still around. Um, their original bass player was a woman. So, And there was a band from California called um, Let's Go Bowling. They're one of their original saxophone <laughs> players was a woman. So wait, 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 they, they, name, sure. they named themselves yes. Let's Go Bowling? Yes. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, but yeah, I wanted to make sure that that um, that those women pioneer musicians were were um, were given some love. Oh yeah, oh absolutely. There's uh, what do they, what do they say about the Velvet Underground? They only sold twenty five thousand records, but every single one of those people started a band. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
mentioned BIM Scala BIM. I got to jump ahead in my questions here. Now, I'm, I'm looking at it and I know the answer, but the first time I read it, I went, oh, it's got SCA in it, Scala BIM, but that's got to be once again some kind of a, like the Ramones, gaba gaba hey, it's got to be something people scream at each other. Ex explain BIM Scala BIM to us. Sure. I, that's a, <laughs> there's a, such an interesting story around the name BIM Scala BIM. And depending upon which member of the band you ask, you might get a different answer. But, and again, you know, this is for people of a certain age, you might remember this, but there was a television cartoon called Johnny Quest. Oh, yeah. Um, and one of the characters was um, like a young Indian boy. Um, Haji, I think his name was. And he used to say, Bim Salabim. Now, somebody else in the band told me, no, actually, it was Johnny Carson when he was Karnak, would say Bim Salabim um, to Ed McMahon. So it, again, it depends on who you talk to. But they took that phrase, wherever it comes from, and they changed Sala to Scala yeah. because um, they wanted to make sure that people knew what kind of band they were. Yep, that's no, good, good. It, I, I think it's better than Let's Go Bowling, but to be honest, I would <laughs> rather be in Let's Go Bowling. Okay, look, I'm going to quote Bob Geldof here. Because cause I read this chapter and went, oh, come on. Who the F are the Hooters? Now, <laughs> really? And we danced? This this isn't yeah. a ska band, or is it? It was. Yes, it was. Um, fascinating story. You know, I grew up in, in New Jersey, halfway between New York and Philadelphia, so I used to pick up radio stations from Philadelphia where I lived. Um and the Hooters were uh, uh, local heroes in Philadelphia. And before they sort of transitioned away from ska and reggae and became a rock band, they were 100% a ska and reggae band. And um, they uh, happened to go see The Police and Madness, I think, in the same week around 1979 or 1980 at some small club in Philadelphia. And they were, you know, rock musicians and they were... Um, they just were blown away by the police and madness and said, you know what, why don't we try this? And mm -hmm. they went and um, they wrote only songs that were, you know, had a more like a mix of rock and ska or rock and reggae yeah. for their audience. But they became huge in Philadelphia and they used that as a jumping off point to be signed to Columbia Records. And, you know, I guess Columbia's marketing people were like, we love you guys, but we need you to move more towards the middle of, of being a rock band because we yeah. think that's more marketable. But that's uh, absolutely true. They started as a ska and reggae band. Yeah, I took it. Yeah, I I, I don't know much about uh, No Doubt, but I have read that once they once they got past their first album, they were molded a lot more going one way or another rather than that's just right. play and that's that. All right. Exactly. You, you got to tell me about the, uh, the uptones, folks. When you read this book, it's you should have named the chapter an homage to the uptones. What, what about them? It seems like they're the template for everything that came. Yeah, uh, the uptones are fascinating. Um, they were a group of high school students from Berkeley High School in California who um, who went to see the English Beat one night uh, at a show in San Francisco around 1980 or 81. A group of them. And on the bus ride home from San Francisco back to Berkeley, basically decided on the bus they were going to start their own ska band. And um, they 
they practiced and pulled all the best musicians from a band, a high school band, into the into their band, which later be, became called the Uptones. And on the last day of school, I think it was 1982, they convinced the principal to let them play on the steps of the school as you know, 4,000 kids were walking out on their way to summer vacation. Huh. And um, they made quite an impression and used that show to sort of um, launch themselves and became local heroes basically in Berkeley and, and San Francisco while they were in high school. So, um, mm. <laughs> you know, it's kind of crazy, you know, and one of them joked to me and said when um, he was going out on dates before he met his wife, people would say to him, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. And he would say, well, I was a teenage rock star. Yeah. And it's true. In, in San Francisco, that yeah. kid was a teenage rock star. Um, but their songs were played on, on all the main radio stations in, in uh, Northern California. And, um, the, the, the crazy thing is that they were rock stars from being about 16 or 17 until about 21. So so they peaked a little early, but um, their story is very true in terms of, of being um, completely influenced by ska and, and making ska music their focus. And, and they happened to come at the, just the right time when that generation of, um, of kids in the early 80s were, were into that sound. You had to know their parents could not tell them anything oh no not no. at all i mean these were these were guys who were you know playing a show until three o'clock in the morning and then getting up the next day for a biology concern, you know so it's kind of crazy <laughs> <laughs> how's that homework coming kid Now you've mentioned multiple times you're you're New Jersey you're in this this uh, triangle of the big cities up there in the east. Does ska have a home base? I mean, punk generally came out of New York, grunge generally out of Seattle. Does ska have a home base here in the U.S. where it all sort of went? Well, I think you know the the goal of my book was to show that it was actually all over nationally. You know, there were bands from Boston, New York, San Francisco, mm-hmm. Kansas City, but I think. Now, most people would say that the heart of ska music is probably American ska music is Southern California. Um, that's what I think most people sort of associate it with. Los Angeles or Orange County, you know, right outside Los Angeles would be considered, I guess, the the heartbeat of American ska. Mm-hmm. This is going to take a moment to set up. You know, heavy metal has got hair metal. Country has got bro country. These sort of people who latched on they're not really ska but they're doing music in the vein of it because it would make them famous does ska have those kind of bands i mean uh, uh, is no doubt seen as sort of riding coattails or anything like that the b-52s are there like poser ska bands that when you listen to it the real ska bands go ah no 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 Yes, that's. I would. I wouldn't disagree with that. I think there are um, bands who have um, dedicated themselves one hundred percent to playing two tone styled ska or traditional ska, so more like the ska you heard from sixties and seventies in Jamaica, um, and have done that consistently throughout their careers. One of the bands I would, I would think to name would be the Slackers, mm-hmm. who come from New York 
and have over their you know 30 year career only played ska um and they've been successful doing that i i like to refer to them sort of as the grateful dead of ska they um <laughs> they have just built their own grassroots audience that loves them and buys their albums and comes to hear them when they tour so that's possible but to answer your question yeah a lot of bands um started as ska bands uh, i would say no doubt is a perfect example you know gwen stefani loved the police and she loved madness and um the specials and that's how they started and as they became more and more popular they moved away from that sound because um the record company wanted to sell records and i guess the assumption was that american ears would not be accustomed to this sound but rather you know you want to have a little hint of some ska guitar there or you want to dress like your rude boys and rude girls that's fine <laughs> but the the music needs to be a little bit more marketable yeah um and i i think that's sort of true for a lot of the bands that people would consider ska bands i mean you know the mighty mighty boston's unfortunately they just broke up last week after 40 years oh but i guess i would say they're another band who stuck to their guns when it came to playing what they you know what they played with ska punk they mixed punk and hardcore guitars with ska rhythms and kind of helped create a whole brand new subgenre. um but they, they stuck it out for, for all that time as well. So, you know, there are bands that did it their own way and were rewarded for that. And then there were others who made the decision, you know, let's let's do what our manager and our record companies yeah. tell us. Well, let's make a living at it, basically. Right, yeah. right, exactly. You know, being a starving artist should only be a portion of your career. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. If it's not working out, maybe you should try something different. <laughs> That's right. Time for the second break. We need to give our affiliates the ability to play their sponsors. Back in a minute with Mark Wasserman, author of Skaboom, an American ska and oral history on Rock School. Now, the, you you mention a lot of bands, and every time I do one of these interviews, I, I have a piece of paper, and I'm writing down all these bands because I want to download them, because when you mention them, I want to play them. So you just mentioned the Slackers, and of course, Boston's have been said multiple times. Who is that band that, that just, it didn't make it? Those who are huge ska fans know it. And it is a crime that this band didn't become madness. Who's that? Who's that band? Yeah, I, I would have to say, in some ways, it's the Toasters from from New York City. Um, the Toasters really were one of the earliest American ska bands, and really were responsible for creating the New York City ska scene that became um, sort of uh, initially the place that ska music. Uh, was the most popular. Um, New York and LA were really sort of battling for American ska supremacy at one point. Um, but the Toasters, uh, along with Bim Scalabim, were one of the first bands to really go out on the road and spread the gospel of ska, if you will, um, and and created um, you know a path for everybody that followed behind them, where to tour, what cities to go to. Um, you know, their early records were considered really influential in terms of. Um, turning other people on to ska and and unfortunately for whatever reasons um it was the mighty mighty boss tones and not the toasters 
Hmm. They got signed to Mercury Records. And that's just the break sometimes. Um, you know, various things happen. But for whatever reason, um, somebody decided, a, a, a record label executive decided, I think it's the Boston's. Let's go with them. Let's sign them. Let's put our money and our muscle behind them. And, and so, unfortunately, that was a miss for the Toasters. But I think they deserve a, a lot of credit for being one of the bands that, that laid the groundwork for, for everything that's come after What's the song? What's the song? What? What's the uh, toaster so song? The toasters. Uh, I know. Don't, don't you hate that? Ba- <laughs> you don't, don't, I'd say "Don't Let the Bastards Grind You Down" from one okay. of their later records is, is, a, is a pretty popular one. Um, you know, anything from their first two albums, you can't go wrong. Close your eyes, drop your finger. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. You know, I may be out in left field on this one. I don't think you mentioned it in the book, but. The, when you look at the timing of Ska, like you said, 90s, and that big band revival that came up, did, do you think Ska pushed into that, or am I, just, am I just out in left field? No, you're not out in left field at all. In fact, um, when my book came out uh, last year, it was one of three books on Ska, and one of the other books was a book that actually looked into that. It hmm. looked at this sort of connection between Ska and swing music, Swing music had a moment for about a year um, in the 90s, mid, late 90s. There was a Gap commercial that used the swing song. And then there were bands, I guess, like uh, Cherry Pop and Daddies and Squirrel Nut Zippers that had some airplay on the radio for a minute. Um, but I think there's definitely a connection. You know, uh, swing bands dressed in suits, not quite the same way as ska bands, but people could who might not noticed a difference would say wow that sounds like ska or looks like ska to me mm-hmm. they were big bands they had horns there was a lot of dancing taking place during their shows so no you're not off at all um uh you know you, it's, a, it's a book by ken partridge if you want to ch- if anybody wants to check that out to learn more about the connection between um american ska and american swing music wow i missed my chance i could have written that thing Climbs into daddy's pants and goes collecting the ransom's welfare chain. Now, Cindy Lopper. That's a name everybody knows. She's so unusual. How does she figure into your book? Well, it, it, she figures in in a very interesting way. Um, and it, it goes back to what we were talking about before with the Hooters. Um, Cindy was in a band um, uh, and she decided she wanted to go solo. And she was signed to a development deal by uh, a guy who happened to go to college with the two lead guys from the Hooters. And he approached them and said, hey, I've got an opportunity for you. Uh, I'm trying to help Cindy get some songs for her debut album. Would you be interested in working with her? And they said yes. So they ended up meeting with Cindy and the initial demos that they recorded with her of songs they were helping to write for her all had a sort of ska and reggae vibe similar to the early Hooters. And um, obviously the record label said, these are great songs, but we need you to move them more towards a, a pop rock yeah. sound. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they, they ultimately did. But Cindy was a huge fan of the Hooters after she saw them the first time. And um she and one of the band's musicians, Rob Hyman, ended up writing um, Time After Time together. And uh, <clears throat> Rob played the 
original demo of that for me, which was a reggae song. Which is pretty amazing to hear it as a reggae song. But they kept working at it and kept working at it, and it ended up being what you hear today. But a lot of the songs on her first debut album, um, the original demos, have a ska and reggae feel. And she stayed connected with them ever since. Rob Hyman goes on tour with her. They still write together. So um, it's just another one of those quirks of American music where you know ska music had a little bit of the story there. I, I've missed the entire second half of your answer because I've got time after time in my head and I'm trying to put that dun 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 behind it and it's I'm not getting it together. I'm not getting yeah, it together. Yeah, no, it's okay. If you listen to it, Rob explained to me that um, uh, <clears throat> there's a, a synth bass line and he based that synth bass line on a reggae bass line. So if you go back and listen to it, or you can find on YouTube sort of the early demos of it, you can hear it a little more clearly. Oh, they're up? Okay. I'm going to try yeah. and grab it. And yeah. I'll, I'll stop you and throw a little piece of it in and then come back to it. That sure. is what I'll do. Mark Wasserman, the name of the book is Skaboom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History. Uh, I assume available at fine booksellers everywhere? You can get my book on Amazon, or you can get it from my, my publisher, who is DeWolf Publishing. That's D-I-W-U-L-F.com. Do, do that spelling again. That was off. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, DeWolf Publishing. It's, it's D-I-W-U-L-F. Yeah. It's no, so way that any, it's no way that anybody would uh, spell it just hearing the words of it. <laughs> Mark, Mark it, it was wonderful. It was really a wonderful book. I enjoyed it immensely. And to be honest with you, I can't remember the last time I ever reached for a piece of ska. So you took somebody who, who wasn't an immediate fan and held their attention, at least for four good sittings of a book. So well done. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the, the kind words. That means a That's lot. great. I appreciate you coming on the show, too. I like it when, when authors are willing to come and talk with me for you know somewhere near an hour. So, Mark. No, I loved it. It was great. I love the conversation. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you for coming. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you.